0: On today's podcast, I talk with certified infant and child sleep consultant Eva Klein about how to get and keep our kids asleep through the night so parents can get a restful night slumber as well.
1: I want to specify because I think the term bedtime routine can scare a lot of parents because it might sound like I'm implying that they have to spend the next hour doing this whole long, drawn-out ordeal, even with, you know, a toddler or a preschooler. And I want to assure you that that does not need to be the case at all.
0: Hi, and welcome to The Parentologist Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kim. The Parentologist Podcast is a show about everything parenting with a therapeutic twist. Each episode focuses on a variety of relatable topics, including parenting family children relationships mental health and pop culture hear from a variety of medical professionals psychological experts authors celebrities and other parents with inspiring stories you'll feel like you're in the same room with your friends getting all of your questions answered you'll laugh you'll cry you'll learn and you'll have fun On today's podcast, we have Eva Klein with us today. She is a mom of three, as well as a certified infant and child sleep consultant. She's also the founder of My Sleeping Baby and the Sleep Bible Program. Eva's main goal is to help her clients establish healthy sleep habits for their children. Eva, thank you so much for being here today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So I'm excited about our discussion today. We're gonna be talking all about sleep training, which gets me excited as a mom, because not only are we going to help parents get more sleep, but we're also going to help little kids get more sleep. So it's a win-win situation. Um, And just, I've been looking at your website and looking at all the things you do and you do so much for parents and for, and for kids, um, mostly in the zero to five range. Um, but I just want to pick your brain about some things and some tangible tools that parents can have to get more sleep themselves and to get their kids to be sleeping more. So where do you normally start with your parents when you do your consultations? What is you know some of the first things you ask a parent um, about their sleep habits and sleep patterns and things like that?
1: Yeah. So, no, this is, I'm very, very excited to dial, to delve in here to one of my favorite topics in the entire world. So, when I work with families, whether it is in a one-on-one consultation or in my Sleep Bible program, which is my online coaching program, the very first thing that we always have to do is go through what I like to call the sleep foundations first or address their sleep hygiene, which basically refers to everything that is non-sleep training related. (laughs) So you see- So to explain a little bit further, what a lot of people don't realize is that When a baby or a young child of any age isn't sleeping optimally, if they are having trouble falling asleep at bedtime, if they are waking up frequently at night or waking up at all at night to begin with, um, if they're older and are not napping enough during the day and they're just not getting enough good quality sleep over a 24-hour period, there's usually a multitude of things going on. It's usually not just a matter of, oh, just do this, or oh, try that, and then you will magically get your little one sleeping like a champ. Um, and so because there's a multitude of things going on, we need to make sure that all those puzzle pieces are addressed methodically. Um, sleep training addresses one very big puzzle piece, and it's an important one, but, and that puzzle piece is 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 basically referred to teaching your little one to sleep independently. Um, And that's important because by the four month mark and onwards, your little one is going to be cycling in and out of deep and light sleep, just like adults do, except that their sleep cycles are much smaller than ours. And so if you have a baby or a young child who does not know how to sleep independently, they need you, they need to be rocked to sleep. They need to be fed to sleep. They need to be lying down next to you until they fall asleep. You know, They need you there in some way, shape. shape, or form for them to fall asleep initially, there is nothing stopping them from waking up a million times throughout the night simply because they need you to come back and recreate those conditions. So that's a very, very big puzzle piece that needs to be addressed. But if the other puzzle pieces aren't addressed first, addressing that one by itself might not work. So for example, we need to make sure that your little one's sleep environment is optimal. Do you have blackout blinds? Do you have a white noise machine? Is your little one dressed appropriately for the temperature in the room? Because for obvious reasons, if if the temperature in the room is 68 degrees and you have your little one dressed in a short-sleeved onesie um, and they're cold as a result, then attempting any form of sleep training, whether it's the most hands-off or the most hands-on, might not work, right? So that's just one very obvious example. Um, we're also looking at your little one's daytime schedule. So this is huge. This is crucial. When is your little one waking? When is she napping? How long is she napping for? What does that 24-hour picture look like? Because if they are overtired because they didn't sleep enough during the day, they've been up for too long, bedtime is too late, et cetera that can also cause them to fight sleep and wake up at night. We need to be looking at daytime nutrition. We need to be looking at their wind down routines. Um, These are crucial puzzle pieces that we always need to address first, you know, in a simultaneous way so that when we then move on to the next part of things, which is to teach them the independent sleep, we are setting them up to be successful. And that's the key here, right? Because when people ask me, you know, what kind of approach do you take to get babies sleeping? My answer is a, the pragmatic one, <laughs> which right. I know doesn't address <laughs> exactly. And I know what they're asking, but I first and foremost address their question by saying, I am first and foremost a pragmatist when it comes to sleep. I am, it's all about solutions around here, recognizing that, of course, the solutions can look different from baby to baby and family to family, but no matter what kind of approach you are comfortable with or uncomfortable with, nothing is going to work, at least not consistently, without having those pieces addressed first. So that's sort of how that works in a nutshell. Yes, exactly. And
0: I 100% agree. And we're going to get to that a little bit later. We're going to talk a little bit about the different types of methods and you know what you recommend because I have my own opinions on that too. But in the meantime, I know you mentioned some of the crucial puzzle pieces that we need to you know, address first. And it made me think of bedtime routines. How important are structured bedtime routines? You know, a lot of parents will do a bath, maybe read a book, you know, things like that. Um, how important yeah. are those to stay on a schedule like that for babies and toddlers and preschoolers?
1: Yes, very important, um, extremely important, and uh, and that statement is actually backed up by evidence. There was a really cool study that was done. Gosh, it was a number of years ago. I can't remember the details, but I know that what happened in this particular study is that they had a few hundred children in 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 various different ages. I, I believe that they ranged from three weeks all the way up to kindergarten, you know, four or five, six years old. And what they did was during this three-week process, they had, a, um, they had a control group where, you know, they did nothing. But then there was the other group that received the intervention, which was a consistent bedtime routine. That was it. Nothing else changed. And within that three-week period, they saw that just by adding in that bedtime routine, it led to a decrease in bedtime battles. It led to a quicker onset of sleep. So the kids were falling asleep more quickly, more easily. And it led to less night wakings and disruptions than the control group where there was no intervention. And so... I thought, and this is as young as three weeks, which I thought was very cool, that as young as three weeks, they can pick up on those cues that a bedtime routine offers. And I want to specify, because I think the term bedtime routine can scare a lot of parents because it might sound like I'm implying that they have to spend the next hour doing this whole long drawn out ordeal, even with, you know, a toddler or a preschooler. And I want to assure you that that does not need to be the case at all. If that's not, if it's enjoyable for you and, and it's enjoyable for everyone to do that length of a bedtime routine, then, hey, whatever floats your boat. But if you're scared off by something like that, you know, myself included, like, I don't think I've ever had the wherewithal to spend that long of a period of time doing that kind of bedtime routine. You don't have to do it. Um, When my kids were babies... Their bedtime routine was maybe 10 minutes, um, especially if it didn't include a bath. Okay, fine. So the bath might be five minutes. And then I would get them dressed. And then I would, you know, offer them a feed and then, you know, get them into their swaddle or their sleep sack and maybe read another book, sing a good night song, put them in the crib done. Good night. Love you. See you later. Um, with the older ones, you know, my son is now three, almost four. Um, there might be a little bit more to it than that. You know, again, we, he doesn't have a bath every night, you know, maybe every other night though, we have a pool, we go into our pool in the summer. So I guess maybe he's (laughs) whenever he goes (laughs) swimming, uh, in those early evening hours, I'll throw him into the bath afterwards. But you know, then from there, you get, get him out of the bath, get him into his pajamas. Um, We then go and read, you know, a couple books that he chooses out. We go and, you know, brush our teeth. We go back into his room, you know. We sing a couple goodnight songs. He might, you know, we might chat for a few minutes like before those, you know, goodnight songs. And then I say goodnight and I leave. So, and this is a three-year-old, almost four-year-old, you know, starting kindergarten in the fall. I don't think that that is a, a a long drawn out ordeal by any means, and I'm a naturally pretty impatient person. If I if I do say so myself, <laughs> um, but the difference that this makes to kids in order to be able to fall asleep easily at bedtime is huge. Because a you're giving them ample opportunity to wind down. Um, B you're giving them those cues. Which are so huge and powerful that sleep time is coming. And C, you're giving them that special connection time with you before they go to bed for the night and they're about to separate from you, right? So be, ha- being able to fill up their love tank, as I like to call it, you know, even with that short, 10 to 20 minute long special routine can really go a long way with that separation initially going much more smoothly.
0: Absolutely. And you know, I think a lot of times when it comes to bedtime routines, it's the consistency that is really the key, right? Mm-hmm. Um but let's talk a little bit about self-regulation because yeah. when I used to do some therapeutic sleep consultations, nothing like what you do, but you know, I'd have parents asking me for some guidance and help during that those early years in those process, since that's my mm-hmm. special team when I work with children and parents um, and to me, the sleep training had to do a lot with the parent self regulation because yes. if they weren't regulated, then their babies weren't regulated, and if they heard yes. their baby crying, they would get anxious and then mm-hmm. they might overcompensate for the sleep training, um, or not really doing training at that point, really, uh, you know, picking up their child, doing extra feedings, you know, and sometimes parents, I get it. I've been there. I'm a mom of two and, and you're a mom of three. So, you know, mm-hmm. we understand that there's some nights where you just try to survive. Like you're, yes. you're, you have an empty tank as a parent. You're just trying to do the best you can. You just want some sleep. And so you'll do whatever it takes, even if it means you know, not going through the, the process you you should maybe be doing to help your child, you know, regulate and you just do the extra feeding or you do, you know, this and that. So uh, I guess I have two questions because my mind's going in different places right now at once. But I do want to learn some of the pitfalls that parents go through or maybe some things that some suggestions of things you can recommend for parents to avoid um, that isn't helpful when they're trying to sleep strain their child. Let's start with that first. Let's do that.
1: Right. So things. So things to avoid. So, oh my goodness, there are so many things that I could that I could say. You know. So the biggest mistakes. You know that you would say that like parents, exhausted parents, make when they are trying to get their little ones to sleep. So I would say mistake number one is don't try something at three o'clock in the morning because it's yeah. not going to work. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. So, you know, there is don't don't begin implementing a plan of any sort at three a.m. And see how it goes, because spoiler alert, it's likely not going to go very well. And the reason for that is because it doesn't mean that you shouldn't have a plan that addresses that unnecessary 3 a.m. wake up. But there are a multitude of things contributing to that 3 a.m. wake up that need to be addressed at 7 a.m., onwards, leading up to bedtime. So, you know, a lot of the time parents will reach out to me and they'll say, oh yeah, like the daytime isn't so bad, but nighttime is horrible. And, you know, my kiddo wakes up at 3 a.m. and is up for an hour and a half. So like, what do you do when your little one's up at 3 a.m. and they won't go back to sleep? And I'm going, no, 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 we have to rephrase that question. The question needs to be, well, why is your little one waking up at 3 a.m. and is up for an hour and a half to begin with? What is the reason? Because there could be 25 different things. And then from there, then I can tell you, you know, what we need to do. And nine out of 10 times, the solution isn't just going to involve an action plan for 3 a.m. So, for example, as I was saying before, if your little one is overtired because they were, let's say, up for too long before bedtime, that can cause almost every single sleep problem out there, including a 3 a.m. wake up for 90 minutes, right? And so right. if you have a baby whose bedtime is significantly too late, then that could be, that's likely a contributing factor. And so the solution is, well, well part of the solution, sorry, is bumping that, bed, that bedtime earlier so that we are eliminating overtiredness on that front, which could be causing this problem. So don't start doing something at 3 a.m. Don't experiment and see what happens. Let me see if I leave her for 20 minutes. You know, will she go back to sleep? Even if she does, it's not going to get you anywhere because the root of the problem are other things. And, you know, there's other things going on. And so in order to have a game plan for 3 a.m. that's going to work, We got to make sure that game plan's addressing everything else. So that's a pretty big, you know, mistake I see people make. And then, of course, the problem from there is that they tire themselves out you know, deciding at 3am, okay, that's it. I've had enough. I just nursed this baby, you know, an hour and a half ago. She doesn't need to be nursed again. I'm going to stand my ground and not nurse her. And then an hour later, this baby is still up. And then, you know, this mom is now even more tired than she was before. And I sympathize because I, I don't blame that mom for saying like, I know this baby isn't hungry, but, Remember that a a 3 a.m. plan is just not going to work the way that you're hoping that it will, Um, but it doesn't mean that we can't get the problem resolved. It just has to be done properly. It can still be resolved because I agree with the premise, this hypothetical premise of I just fed this baby an hour and a half ago. She doesn't need to eat again. I agree, but then we have to be looking at, okay, what are the numerous factors here that are causing this baby to continue to wake up?
0: Right. Now, what about the parents that purposely skip a nap time to quote unquote make their kids more tired so they'll sleep better through the night? What are your thoughts about that?
1: Yes. So it depends on the age of a child here. If we're talking about a 24-month-old, that will likely backfire because a 2 year old on average, needs about 13 hours of sleep over a 24-hour period. So we're usually looking at approximately a two-hour nap with an 11-hour uninterrupted night. So um, it's incredibly rare for a 24-month-old to be able to go 12 hours straight, uninterrupted without getting tired and then be able to give you you know, that 12 to 13 hours at night to compensate day in and day out without them getting overtired in the process. So in that scenario, yeah, that might not be the right strategy. But let's look at a kid like my son who is turning four at the end of September. Okay, so his sleep needs are a little bit different than a two-year-old's in that an average three-year-old, so 36-month-old, usually needs about 12 hours of sleep over a 24-hour period. And then by the time they get to age four, it goes down to 11 and a half. So if my almost four-year-old was taking a two-hour nap in the middle of the day, it would be impossible to get him down for the night because that nap is just too darn big, and he doesn't have the sleep needs that a two-year-old has. So, in his situation, sometimes he'll take a really short nap at daycare for maybe forty-five minutes, um, and then he can still go to bed for the night for eight o'clock. Or sometimes he doesn't nap at all and will be down for the night between seven and seven thirty. And I would say that that's pretty typical for that age range. So. I think it is important with that type of question to you know, differentiate between a two-year-old and a four-year-old um, because, listen, overtired two-year-olds and overtired four-year-olds are equally challenging to get to sleep. But what makes a two-year-old overtired is not the same thing as what makes a four-year-old overtired. So, um, and then of course, with the three-year-olds, you know, the 36 month olds, I would say their sleep needs, I said, are are somewhere in the middle where some need to, you know, take a short regular nap and, uh, and then some can legitimately, you know, make it straight through the night. But if we're talking a two-year-old or an 18 month old, for example, you know, let's just get rid of their nap and keep them up all day. Don't try this at home, kids. (laughs) That's going to get you, that's going to get you into what I like to call the danger zone. And the danger yes. zone, you know, with overtired toddlers especially is not not fun for anyone. Right. The golden nugget
0: of sleep training advice. Now, we're going to go into your opinion and mine as well about attachment parenting versus cried out methods when it comes to sleep training, but we're going to take a quick break first. Okay. Hi, I'm Dr. Kim, the parentologist. As a wife, mom, therapist, and all-around juggler like most of you, I lead a hectic life, and sometimes that means indulging in foods on the go that my stomach doesn't always agree with. Thankfully, Pepto-Bismol provides me fast and effective relief for all kinds of upset stomachs. Having a little too many guilty pleasures at a family barbecue or birthday celebration may lead to indigestion or heartburn. So I always keep Pepto on hand to get fast relief when I need it the most. Pepto-Bismol, use as directed and keep out of reach of children. Okay, so I know I have my own opinions on this. When I used to do some sleep training myself for my own children on a personal level, and then professionally, when I used to do some sleep training consultations,
1: mm-hmm.
0: attachment parenting versus cry it out. You are a professional sleep consultant. So where do you stand on those two issues? I, I know that could be a whole podcast episode in itself, obviously. Yeah. So yeah. the short version, the Clip Notes version of where do you stand? Because I'm, I'm honestly somewhere right in the middle. Uh, when I, when I, you know, done my own personal, like I said, and professionally. So where do you stand when, when it comes to that? Or what do you think? I never, every every family's different, of course. And we want to respect that. Um, but where do you stand when it comes to your consultations or how do you handle, handle that?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. So I'll, I'll just address something, you know, generally speaking. And that is that I am a firm believer in the fact that there are numerous ways to be able to raise happy, healthy, emotionally stable children. There is, I do not believe that there is a one-size-fits-all in terms of how to address your little one's sleep challenges for every single family across the board. Um... There are a lot of families, some of my close friends included, who practice attachment parenting, some philosophically, like they knew from the very beginning, you know, they intently, philosophically subscribed to, you know, that way of parenting and it resonated with them and they do it and it works for them. Some of them sort of fell into it by accident. You know, bed sharing was just easier for them to get sleep and they legitimately enjoyed it. Um, And so it's a great choice for them. And my response is cool. Amazing. Why, why would I ever tell you to do something otherwise? Um, I never bed shared with my kids because I didn't like it. I didn't like it. I don't sleep well with a baby or a child right next to me. I don't sleep well with a husband right next to me either. Just ask him. I'm a very, you know, aggressive sleeper. I move all over the place. And uh, I don't mind kicking him in my sleep. But if I subconsciously know that there is a baby right next to me, I won't be able to get into that deep sleep that allows me to be feel so much more restored um, when waking up. And so it was something that never worked for me. And you know what, that's also okay. You know, I have a friend who it was funny the other day, she was at the park. And you know, a bunch of us are all chatting. And she, you know, made a comment about, you know, how, you know, her kid who's the same age as my three year old. Landed up, you know, in her bed last night. And then she sort of half jokingly looked at me and was just like, oh, gosh, I shouldn't be saying anything in front of Eva, you know, should I, you know, and like, like, oh, I shouldn't be saying this in front of you. It's so embarrassing. And, and I said, and I looked at her because this is a friend of mine. And I was just like, listen, friend, buddy, as long as your kid doesn't end up in my bed, I don't care what you do. Like, how does that impact impact me? If it's actually working for you, I just don't want your kid waking me up in the middle of the night. You can do you, right? So when it comes to that world, I am absolutely a firm believer in you do what works for you. At the same time, if it doesn't work for you, if you're not getting the sleep that you need, if your baby is not getting the sleep that they need, if your child is not getting the sleep that they need, then I also believe that you've got a plethora of other choices to choose from that will get you to the exact same endpoint, which is a happy, healthy, well rested, emotionally stable child. And so, my one and only beef with the attachment parenting world is that they disagree with me on that. They think right. that their way of doing things is the only way, is the ideal way, and that everything else is sort of down the totem pole in terms of ideal. And uh, And I don't believe that. And I don't think that there's any evidence to back that up. In fact, I think the evidence that we do have, the studies that we do have, sort of prove the opposite, that we do have the freedom to be able to choose what legitimately works for us and for my people who reach out to me they need sleep and they're not getting sleep bed sharing they some of them have tried it and it doesn't work some of them just don't want to do it just like me and so when it comes to those options there are a multitude of other options cry it out is one of them but i will just say that it's not it's it's very rarely if ever my go-to approach for teaching a child to sleep independently for numerous reasons. Number one, because for the majority of people who reach out to me, it's important to them that they feel comfortable with what they're doing. And if cried out is outside of your comfort zone, you know, it's sort of technically at the other end of that, you know, that range here, you know, so uh, attachment parenting is like one end of the spectrum. Cry it out is like the other extreme end of the spectrum. I would say most of my people are looking for something in the middle. And the middle is very big. It's not like there's one option in the middle. There's like a whole slew of things in the middle that again, can get them that sleeping child that they know that they need. Um, And that might look like, a gradual withdrawal method where instead of rocking your child, you are sitting next to them and then you move, you know, every few minutes. It might mean you check and console on them. You put them in the crib, you leave and you check on them at, you know, certain intervals or a combination of both um, so that this way you feel comfortable with your plan Um It sits better with you. You know, it's a better fit, you know, for your child. And we can still get you the exact same results that a cry it out method might get. In fact, sometimes, I'm actually going to correct myself here. A lot of the time, depending on what your starting point is, cry it out might be a much bumpier road than using one of those gradual withdrawal methods. You might actually end up getting more crying, more night wakings and a longer process, if it's just not the right fit to begin with, then if you go with something that involves a lot more intervention, and then gradually weaning off of it over time. So again, it's not that like I subscribe to one particular approach philosophically, because I don't, because my philosophy here is pragmatism, (laughs) right? It's, It's all about like, What works so that everyone can feel happy and healthy and whole again. And that is what I have seen is that there are a whole multitude of things that work for a whole slew of families depending on what their needs and wants and comfort levels are. That's the truth. So there's, there's no, there's no one size fits all approach in my opinion.
0: Yes. No, I hundred percent agree with you. And I'm, like I said, somewhere right in the middle too. And you said the middle's pretty big. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's just, you know, it's, it's hard for a lot of parents to hear their child cry, which I think is hard when it comes to safe training, because when their child's crying, it's our natural, uh, our natural feeling is to go soothe them, is to go help them, yeah. is to, you know, so they don't cry because, you know, it's it's hard to hear. Um, I think it's also hard to hear when they get older and they're screaming your name and they're saying, mommy, daddy, come, come help me. Or they're running to your bed every 20 minutes because they can't sleep because there's monsters in the room or whatever the case is. So I'm very preventative in my approach. And, you know, as a therapist, I do value and recognize that children need to learn how to self-soothe at a very early age and how we get there. Like you said, there's, there's different ways how to get there. On how to teach that self-soothing, and it also comes from the parents, as I mentioned earlier. It, it's it's with the parent self-regulation. If they have high anxiety about their child crying, then they are going to make those three a.m. decisions, right? But yes. if they're able to calm themselves and know their child is going to be okay, that they're that they're healthy and they're safe, and they might cry for five to ten minutes, and like you said, they might go back to sleep after that. So yeah. give them the opportunity. Don't steal that opportunity from them and go pick them up the second you hear them cry. And one of the questions I used to ask when I did parent consultations was how long do you think you can hear your child cry before you'll get so anxious that you'll want to go pick them up? And every parent had a little bit of different time, you know, that they'd feel comfortable. Some said five minutes, some said 12 minutes, some said 20 minutes. So I said, great, set a timer on your phone, go downstairs or go in a different room. So you're not obviously near them, where you can distract yourself for that long of time. And when the timer goes off, if your child's still crying, then go in there. You may not pick them up. You might just, you know, soothe them, like, you know, rubbing their back or something, you know, no feedings, things like that. Right. Um, right. But it really helped them conceptualize how much time goes by because then it can sound like forever and it's only been like two minutes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah. To, to set that timer and have like that tangible way to know, um, you know, so their child can eventually start self-soothing, you know, on their own. Right. But, you know, I know we're we're about out of time, but do you have any, I know you you have a lot of, um different, uh, uh, resources on your website, which we're going to talk about at the end, but what are just some quick tips that you have, um, on some things that maybe a parent who's listening right now can, before they consult with you and, and, and get the whole thing, what can they do at home? Maybe today, just to kind of try out a few things, um, that might help their baby, uh, and or toddler, uh, or preschooler get some more sleep
1: tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Get your little one on an age-appropriate schedule with, you know, a consistent morning wake time, you know, fairly consistent nap times, all based around what are called wake windows or wake periods. That refers to the amount of time that a baby or a child of any age can be up for before they begin to get tired and need to go back to sleep. That's the formula that we need to be using to eliminate overtiredness from the equation or minimize it as much as we can so that you don't have that overtiredness contributing to bedtime battles and night wakings and early rising. So that's off the bat, I would say, one of the most important preliminary steps that you can take to get your little one off on the right foot and get yourself a champion sleeper.
0: I love it. That was just like a really quick boom boom. Here's my tip. What are your thoughts on this? Because this was gonna be my tip that I was gonna share is screen time before bed. Obviously, with babies, Mm -hmm. it isn't so much of a worry, but when they become toddlers, preschoolers, and screen time is, especially in our generation right now, so prominent. When should children get off the screen before bedtime? I know you know there's lots of research and articles out there about you know at least an hour before bed you know, so they can wind down, things like that. But what is your take on that? And what do you suggest to parents?
1: Yeah, I think definitely a solid hour to say, you know, especially if your child likes watching a tablet, you know, that's a bigger problem because the tablet's, you know, right in front of their face. So um, the blue light is that much stronger and it has the potential to really suppress your little one's natural production of melatonin. So having a clear cut rule um, that by the one hour mark before bed, To shut off all screens and do engage in activities that don't involve a TV or a tablet or a phone or a laptop or anything like that, um, I think is a really huge step in the right direction. And, you know, replace those activities with, you know, books or games or going outside for that matter instead.
0: Yeah. I love that because I obviously work with a lot of kids that deal with overstimulation. And I think having that extra stimulation will only hinder parents and not help them. So
1: a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I definitely
0: agree with you. You have such expertise. I loved our conversation today. Where can our listeners find you um, to get more information or maybe sign
1: up and get some official, you know, sleep training consultations with you? Yeah. Amazing. So you can head to my website, mysleepingbaby.com. I have a free masterclass that you can watch anytime called How to Get Your Little One Consistently Sleeping 11 to 12 Hours at Night so that you can feel like a functioning human again. And that class gives you some really tangible, detailed steps that you can take to get your little one sleeping like a champ again. Um, One thing I really want to emphasize is that, uh, you know, and a lot of parents will come to me and say, you know, but my child is so strong-willed or, you know, my child is so difficult or she has ADHD or we suspect she might, you know, she's too young, but we suspect that she might have ADHD and, um, you know, she's so much more challenging than, than my other kids. Is it possible that my kid is just not a sleeper? And, uh, and the answer is no, (laughs) to, to very quickly elaborate sleep is something that doesn't come as naturally to some kids and it does to others, but they can still learn And they can still be taught um, and they need to learn and they need to be taught because they're still human, just like everyone else. And all humans need good quality sleep to be able to thrive. So I believe you when you're hearing me and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, this is never going to work for Johnny because Johnny is literally the most strong-willed kid on the face of the planet. I believe you 100%, but I just want you to know that strong-willed Johnny can still learn how to sleep just as well as as friends can.
0: Yes, absolutely. And, and I love that you work with an age range, you know, the zero to five, because there are very distinct ways you get a baby to sleep. Like I said, who's, you know, in a crib, very confined, you know, can't walk yet versus a toddler who is in a toddler bed and who can get out of bed at any time during the night and walk their little feet right to your, to your room and try and sneak into your bed. Um, I know you have different tips for all different ages. And so I just really encourage parents to go to your website and check out the different um, options that you have for whatever age that the child is in, uh, because there are some different tips for, for each age. And I know that you you know have some great solutions for them. So thank you for what you do and everything you offer to parents. I,
1: I just think it's such a great resource. Thanks so much. I appreciate being here.
0: Thank you for joining me today. I cannot wait for you to listen to more episodes. If you are a new listener, I recommend starting at my best of year one episode first, then make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a thing. And when you love an episode, please leave a review. And if you want to stay connected between episodes, please visit me on social media at The Parentologist and on my blog at theparentologist.com. This podcast is not intended to be a replacement for therapy. If you or someone you know is in crisis, please call 911.